0: The serial killer is unique. He's not pre-selecting his victims. He is definitely not um, stalking them, following them. From a research perspective, this would fit the definition of a serial killer. The only motivation this offender has is to kill. This is 51 Days of Terror, the Seminole Heights serial killings a News Channel 8 investigation. We poured through hundreds of pages of documents and hours of interviews to shed light on the victims and the people at the center of the case, all to answer one of the biggest questions. Why? I'm your host, Amanda Shavari. When you think of a serial killer, it seems like something almost mythical. It's this rare thing that people have a morbid interest in, but rarely understand. What's harder to understand is living in fear of one. Not the fear that a serial killer could pop up in your neighborhood or abduct you in a dark parking lot. We all live with that in the back of our mind. We're talking about the fear you go through when there is a serial killer in your neighborhood. The fear you experience when someone's gunned down four people just feet away from where you live. The fear that eats at you every time you leave the house. Once routine tasks, like taking out the garbage or checking the mail, become life-or-death moments, every little sound makes you afraid to sleep at night. For 51 days, that fear grew inside of the people that lived in a Tampa neighborhood. Three people shot and killed in 10 days, then weeks of uncertainty before a fourth person is gunned down. In between, they tried to keep living. They banded together to make sure everyone felt safe didn't cancel Halloween so that kids could have some kind of normalcy. Their bonds are what gave them strength as they spent almost two months with a terrifying question playing over and over in their heads. Will I be next? It's scary, you know, that we seem to be in the middle of what's going on and we have no idea what's going on. That's the problem. Before we get into the murders, we need to introduce you to Seminole Heights and its history. In the early 1900s, Tampa's population grew rapidly thanks to the arrival of the railroad, the cigar industry, and a growing port. It went from a small town into a city of more than 50,000 people. When these new families needed somewhere to live, they looked to the suburbs. Most of them settled north of downtown into neighborhoods like Seminole Heights. Most didn't own cars, especially with many working-class families moving into town, so a big selling point for Seminole Heights was its direct access to the streetcar system. People would jump onto it to get to and from their jobs downtown. By the end of World War II, it was a tight-knit and growing community, and it became known for its cottage-style homes. Another interesting tidbit about Seminole Heights homes, a few of them have basements. It's something virtually unheard of in Florida, but the neighborhood sits on higher ground. In the years following the war, Seminole Heights started to decline. It was an aging neighborhood, and people were looking for newer, trendier spots. They had cars now. The streetcar system wasn't a major selling point anymore. They could build their lives anywhere. So why live in an old house on the north side of town when you could move into a newer one on the south side or the northwestern area of Tampa? The once tight-knit community was breaking apart. Property values started to decrease, then white flight African Americans were forced to leave their neighborhoods, pushed out by slum clearance projects, a way for cities to knock low-income people out of their homes, to knock it down and make way for new developments. With nowhere to live, African American people turned to Seminole Heights. When they came in, many white families moved out. Yet another blow to the bonds forged in Seminole Heights. The final nail in the coffin for the closeness people felt back then, the highway. In the 1960s, I-275 went in and split the neighborhood in half. There were now two sides, the east and the west. After that, the neighborhood didn't change much until the 90s. Those long drives from the communities further north, they were getting really inconvenient, so families started moving closer to town again. They fixed up those old homes and started investing money in businesses. Let's be clear about something. A lot of this happened and is still happening on the west side. Fixing up homes and businesses is costly. It also boosts property values, so you need money to even move in. If we simplify this and view it as a haves and have-nots situation, people living on the west side are the haves. The east, they'd be the have-nots. They're not getting an influx of private investments to redevelop their homes. They're not seeing an influx of people coming to create new businesses. This is still an economically depressed area. It's also where all of the victims were shot and killed. It wouldn't be truthful to say that people felt completely safe in Seminole Heights before they realized a serial killer was stalking their streets. A look at Tampa's crime map starting in July of 2017, you see a pattern. Grand theft, burglary, theft, robbery, burglary, theft, 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 burglary. 91 incidents between July and October, an overwhelming majority of people stealing. Of course, worrying that someone will steal your stereo out of your car is not the same fear that someone will shoot you dead in the middle of the street. There was a notable amount of crime, though, enough that no one had to wonder what they heard Monday, October 9th at 9 p.m. Gunfire is one of those things that you hear and you know exactly what it is. Benjamin Mitchell was gunned down at a bus stop that night. Police arriving on scene didn't know it would be the first of four homicides and the start of 51 terrifying days for a small community and the people sworn to protect it. Through 51 days, the neighborhood returned to its roots. There was no east and west, just Seminole Heights, just the need to once again become a tight-knit community band together, this time to stay alive. On television, we only have about 90 seconds to tell you a story. It's tough to pare someone's life down to such a small window. So we thought, let's do a podcast. But let's not devote most of our time to the killer. Let's focus on the victims. Let's really tell the stories of their lives. Let's explore how a killer's actions not only took away a life, but also changed the lives of their families forever. Let's look at what it's like to watch someone grow up to go from a babbling toddler to an adult, then have someone take their lives away in an instant. Let's hear what it's like to have someone go from just a call away to a memory. 51 Days of Terror is for the victims. We can't tell this story without including the suspect, but he wasn't our main focus from the moment we started this journey. After so many people graciously allowed us into their homes, shared their loved ones' stories, and relived painful memories, he definitely isn't our focus now the victims are, and we'll go wherever their stories take us. Next on 51 Days of Terror. That was something we didn't want to see. We didn't want to see how he died, you know? I couldn't imagine what had happened. And then later on, finding out that she had been shot randomly by a lunatic. What kind of person shoots someone and just walks away? And a one witness said if your officer had been there fifteen seconds earlier, he would have seen it. You know, that he only served, you know, just die in the street like that for no reason. You know, Anthony had a lot of drinks. You know, I still think about it like it was yesterday. And that's when it really became personal for me and where you guys go hunt him down. And bring his bring his head to me and it was the 45th day from the very first murder. So you're, you're, you're tracking every little thing you can possibly think of to see if, is there a pattern, is there a trend? And my biggest concern is that he was gonna kill a police officer. And for that to happen to my brother, to be shot four times at close range, mm. that's hard. I thought it was a joke. I didn't know what to think at that time until I got around the corner and got out there and seen him landing in the street. And he asked me, he's, like, uh, he's like, do you know how I could get it done? 51 Days of Terror is hosted by me, Amanda Shavari. It's written and executive produced by Brianti Downing. Kelly Hatton is our associate producer. Editing by Dallas Cotton. Heather Monahan is our digital producer. Tim Price is our digital editor. A special thanks to Rodney Kite Powell at the Tampa Bay History Center for helping us with research on Seminole Heights. And thank you to everyone who talked to us about the investigation, and especially the victims. We're honored to tell their stories.